let's get into the Word this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. The Gospel of John, chapter 13. I want us to read some select verses from chapter 13 this morning. In your bulletin, there's a little blue sheet, a listener's guide to help you with uh, kind of follow the message and uh, get more out of it. So I encourage you to make use of that tool as you grow in the Word of the Lord. And I hope you brought your Bibles or something you can swipe or however you want to do it. But uh, join us in the Word, and if you don't, or even if you do, the Scriptures that we're going to read will be on the screen. John chapter 13, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 through 5. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Judas, one of the twelve disciples. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hand, and he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. Now go down to verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, that's correct. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given to you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than than he who sent him. If you know these things, happy or blessed are you if you what? If you know about them. No. If you what? If you do them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that as we walk through the gospel of John, we're seeing the very heart of Christ, Lord, through this testimony of the apostle John. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart this morning would be that which is pleasing to you. Teach us today, Holy Spirit, guide us in your word. We thank you that you've given us a written testimony, Lord, that is without error, without contradiction, Lord, that is a reliable guide to know you and know how to walk in a pleasing way before you. And Father, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name, amen. Just a little bit of uh, context uh, in looking at this passage. This was in the timeline. John is less concerned about 
the timeline than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. As we said, you have four gospel accounts, and in those gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke follow a little bit more, roughly a little bit more of a chronology, a a timeline in the way that they want to present the life of Jesus. Uh, You could say that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are kind of like a video movie of the life of Jesus. But when you come to the Gospel of John, John is more selective. You remember what John said towards the end in John chapter 20, verse 31. He said, these things I have written to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. So John is more selective. John, you might would say, is more of a of a um, PowerPoint. It's more of a photo album in what he is presenting uh, concerning a, about Jesus. So he has an intent and a purpose. But, but if you timeline it out, roughly this event that is taking place, and we know it is, according to Luke, as we compare, that it is in the upper room, uh, according to Luke 22, and that uh, Jesus, as we read in verse 1, knew that his hour had come, that that means that he knew that he was going to die, that he was going to be arrested, that he would be crucified. And so this is probably, or roughly, we would, uh, as we look at the information, is two days before the crucifixion. This would be on that Wednesday, with Friday being before Passover. Remember, they wanted to... the religious leaders wanted to crucify Christ. So this is on the Wednesday as you compare it with other parts of the gospel record. And so these are some of the last words as Jesus has opportunity to speak before his disciples. Uh, it's interesting what he chooses to say, chooses what he, what he chooses to do here. Uh, you think if you had the last words with somebody before you're staff or presidents when they leave office they'll meet before their cabinet or whatever and it's interesting that what Jesus chooses to communicate as some of the final impressions that he would like to make with his disciples Uh, he doesn't talk about end times and yet he does talk at length about his return and he does that in other places Uh, he doesn't talk about now Once uh, I'm gone, here's how we're going to ferment the revolution. Here's how you guys can uh, provide the uh, infrastructure to go against Rome and overthrow the government. Uh, He doesn't do anything about that. He doesn't give them advice. Uh, You know, now remember, guys, we want to really build a big church. We want to build a mega movement, and here are some ways that we can do that. He doesn't do any of that. And he does something quite unusual uh, and, uh, and what he does is the title of my, actually he doesn't title that, I do it, but he gives some theology, and I'm calling it towel theology. Towel theology, or servanthood. Servanthood. Uh, he doesn't just talk about being a servant. He doesn't just talk and think, well, that's a good idea, you all should do that, people will appreciate that. But he does it by example and demonstrates towel theology. Now, when we talk about servanthood, there's a lot of principles that Scripture gives us, a lot of different things that uh, come to mind, and we're going to unpack a little bit of chapter 13 in a minute. But just some general thoughts by way of introduction. 
that as you were to look at Scripture, you'd find that being a servant, the way that God defines it, is more an attitude versus an action. I mean, action is reflective of the attitude, but it's really the attitude of the heart. It's a disposition of being Christ-like. Servants come in all shapes, sizes, colors. It doesn't matter their particular economic background or education. Servants, we find them all over in God's church. And anyone can be a servant. It's not for the elite. It's not for the super spiritual. In fact, everyone is called to be a servant, and everybody can be a servant and grow in that. Some people, as we know, are more natural in serving than others. I think that has to do with what uh, the Bible talks about, um, about the gift of service in Romans 12 too. There is a spiritual gift of service. But that doesn't mean that we are not all called to be servants, that we all not, are not called to serve and love one another by our deeds. And so the Bible does talk about a gift of service, but Galatians 5.13 says that through love we are called to serve one another. You don't have to have a gift to do that, all right? You just have to have the love of Christ of what He's done in your life. It's, it's kind of discipleship 101. Now we know uh, as a principle that Jesus Himself is the ultimate model and example of what being a servant is. You know these scriptures, I picked a couple of them. Mark 10:45. It should I think the there you go. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to what? To serve, to be a servant and to give his life a ransom for many. He didn't come to have people wait on him and serve him. He came to spend his life on the mission that God had given to him. And then we know Philippians 2.5 says that we are to have the same mind that is in Christ. And chapter 2 is a lengthy chapter about how Jesus gave of himself. And we are to have this same mind that is in Christ. That should be also reflective in our life as well. So this morning, as we look at Tao theology... Uh, I want us to look at and have three observations from the passage there that we read in chapter 13. Three observations that for discipleship, for a disciple, these again are foundational. Discipleship 101. This is basic stuff, but don't miss the vitality and the importance that is underscored in the fact that before Jesus was to be arrested, before he was taken to the cross, what legacy lesson did he want to leave his followers? And I think it's significant that he chose to teach on this servitude. What is involved in the humility about the humility of being a servant? There's three observations. And notice with me, first of all, is that Tao theology is dirty. It is messy. It's messy. It's dirty. Look again with me at verses 3 through 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, suddenly got up, unannounced, 
lay aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself around his waist, poured water in the basin, verse 5, and began to wash his disciples' feet. Now, girding a towel around the waist and his actions, those were the actions of what a servant or a slave would do. That would be their job. And so a person who is a wealthy person would have the servants provide this to the guests. Uh, Foot washing was considered in this culture a basic, common, ordinary sign of hospitality. Okay, It wasn't anything unusual. It was just in this culture. Now think about it. You lived in a very dry, deserty landscape. Uh, you might have, again, wore sandals, feet, dry bathing was not a common daily experience. So I will just let you use your own gross imagination to think about the feet that would have been common in that day and time. Now, don't worry, we're not going to have a demonstration of this. So if anybody is getting, you've probably been in churches where you saw, there's no buckets up here, we're not going to do that, all right? And I'm not going to do that, so uh, relax, all right? But what would happen is when, when somebody came into the house as a guest, or even a resident, as they came in, the servant would... Take their, or take their sandals or take the, the guest or the uh, host of the home, would take their sandals off and would begin to wash and clean their feet. That was the job of what a servant or a slave, in some cases, would do. Jesus, by taking this action himself, kind of turns that on its head, doesn't he? He breaks tradition because... One thing they're not used to is the host doing the foot washing. But that's what Jesus is doing. He's the host of this dinner, and he takes it upon himself. Foot washing was a dirty, smelly, humiliating job. And as I said, you might would kind of, you know, tolerate it with your family, maybe a few friends, you do, but just... Random guests and strangers into your house, that probably would be something you would be willing to pass off on somebody else to handle. But in this culture, it was a common act of hospitality as you entered into a home, especially a home for dinner. I thought, Lord, why couldn't the tradition be washing somebody's hands? That would be a little easier, right? That, it, that wouldn't be so, you know, challenging. I'm being nice here. You know, we just wash one another's hands. But feet, and again, we all wear shoes and some of us wear socks. And, and uh, you know, even in Florida life, we wear sandals or whatever. But I doubt that your feet were as dirty and as smelly as those in this first century. It was a dirty job. How many of you ever watched Mike Rowe? On dirty jobs. How many of you know what that show is? Now, I'll be honest with you. I can only watch it to a point, depending on what he's doing. Because sometimes the job is so disgusting. I, it just, and I, I'm, I, I thought about, you know, he was 
you know, he, I mean, he's had all sorts of situations. Uh, sewer inspector. I would just let you use your sanctified imagination of what's involved with that. The one that, to me, was the grossest, that he said is the worst, was helping some researchers catch these snakes up at Lake Erie who were doing research on snake digestion. And they would capture snakes, squeeze them so they would vomit up whatever they ate, and then inspect the vomit. I don't think so. I don't think I would do that. That's pretty bad. How about roadkill collector? You get the idea. But here's what I want to tell you. Regardless of Mike Rowe's dirty jobs, washing, and we're talking about changing this spiritually, the dirty feet of God's people, and we're not talking about literal feet. When you get involved with people, and we're called to serve people, guess what? People are messy. People are dirty. Do you hear what I'm saying? Everybody is not perfectly clean. And again, I always tell people, say, if you're looking for a church where everybody is perfect and clean and never offends anybody or says anything offensive or does anything, I said, please do not come here because you will mess it up, right? Because if you are perfect and you're looking for equal perfection, you will not find it here at Grace Church. There's a reason we are called Grace Church, because we need grace, all right? And that's the way people are. That's the way we are. People are mercy. Tal theology is messy and dirty. Jim uses the word EGR. There's people that are extra grace required. Is that right, the EGR people? Extra grace required. I think he said that about me. And uh, extra grace required that to serve one another, when you are born again, when you cross the line of faith and become a follower of Jesus, you get a towel, and that is part of your calling as a follower of Jesus. It's not optional. Think about when Jesus said this, or when he did this, and the group that he's working with among those disciples. You talk about a messy group of guys, Right? I mean, they all didn't get along with each other as a group. Sometimes there's even situations where they were rude to the crowds. They were even rude to children, right? I mean, they weren't always the most pleasant people. Uh, they doubted Jesus' identity, weren't even sure sometimes of who he was. James and John, two brothers that were from a, the zealot movement, at one point, were upset because this, this group of Samaritans uh, did not receive them and their, their message. And you know what they wanted Jesus to do? They wanted Jesus to hit the nuclear button and just wipe them out. They all took off when the soldiers arrested Jesus. And if that isn't bad enough, one of them was a crook, he was a thief. How about the way Jesus responded to people? Uh, the blind man by the road. How about the woman caught in adultery? The lame man that we saw in earlier that was by the pool of Beth Bethsaida. You see, Christ's mission and what Christ did and what he exhibits 
is Jesus is not afraid to deal with the messy dirtiness of humanity. Jesus stepped into their lives and demonstrated that His love and His mercy is more powerful than their mess. And guess what He does to you and me? He he steps into my life, your life, to demonstrate that His grace, His love, His power is more powerful and more strengthening than whatever mess I bring Him. The only thing that we bring to salvation, as Spurgeon said, is our sin. We might say it this way, we, we only bring a mess to the Lord. And you know what? He knows that in advance. You remember where John began in the Gospel of John when he talks about in the beginning was the Word and it says, and the Word dwelt among us. John 1.14. And we took a little time to unpack that when we began our study that literally it means that the Word tabernacled among us. I'll put it even, even simpler. Jesus set up house in our neighborhood. He came knowing what He knows. He didn't do it as that, oh, I guess it's an okay song, just I hate it ever, ever sung in church. From a distance, you know, God is watching. Was that on some Bettler Midler movie? I mean, you know that. How many of you have no idea what I'm talking about? You know, from a distance. God, okay, now you're going to make me sing you that song I hate, right? It's always the songs you despise that you remember the best, right? He's not, he doesn't work from a distance. He came and pitched his tent in our dirty, messy neighborhood of life. That's what Jesus does. Listen, God didn't love us from a distance. He stepped into our messy world to save us and to set us free. That's what He did. He didn't just just put scriptures and verses up in the sky. He Himself came into our very world, and that's what He offers to do today. If you think God is a distant God, then let me encourage you to think about this Jesus who would love to come into your world and show you what true freedom and joy and acceptance is all about. You know, God found us as a mess. I remember Paul writing in 1 Corinthians. Should be on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Hold it right there before you go on. You notice how that scripture doesn't do what sometimes we do that elevates one type of sin against the other, that thieves is listed right in the midst of sexually immoral And, you know, but it says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now look at verse 11. And such were some of you. It's like Paul, now listen, Corinth is a mess. They got a lot of mess going on. And he says, while you're getting haughty 
and a big head saying, oh, I'm glad I'm not one of them. He says, and some and such were some of you. That means that church was a collection of transformed homosexuals, thieves, drunkards, etc., etc., etc. What happened? They were transformed and changed. It says, but such were, past tense, were some of you, but you were washed. He did a little towel theology on you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of of the Lord Jesus. Tau theology is a dirty job, but Jesus demonstrates that if you're going to love people the way he loved them, and you're going to get involved in their life, it's going to get messy. And he demonstrated that truth. And that secondly leads us that Tau theology is not only dirty, but secondly, Tau theology is demonstrative. Here's what I mean by demonstrative. Verse 6 through 9. It says, then, then he came to Simon Peter. He's going around washing their feet. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? I mean, he's a bit incredulous that Jesus would do that. And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing, what I am doing you, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said, verse 8, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus said, If you do not, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. You see, Peter always kind of had a presumptuousness of knowing what Jesus should do and what he shouldn't do. Because he had this mindset. Remember when Jesus spoke about, one of the first times he spoke about his death and how he would suffer at the hands of the enemy, and Peter said, God forbid. Even when they came to arrest Jesus in that garden, what did Peter do? He, was, he had a conceal and carry permit, and he whipped out his sword, and he whacked off that Malchus, I think that was his name, his ear of the high priest. You see, Peter struggled in that Identity of really trying to understand what Jesus was saying and doing and rationalizing that with his own preconceived ideas. But what Jesus is doing here, when he says that unless you allow me to demonstrate and wash you, and obviously there's several applications of the spiritual washing and cleansing there, but I think the thing for our purposes this morning, it is demonstrative that unless you allow me to show you this so that you in turn will go likewise, you can have no part of me. In other words, this is part and parcel of what it means to be someone who follows me. And if you do not allow me to do this to you, that you would in turn do likewise. I mean, if, if you're not into that, It's as if Jesus says, then walk. If that's beneath you, go. It's not real deep. It's very fundamental of what Jesus is doing here and what he's showing here. That a servant's heart of humility and mercy and grace demonstrates the reality 
of a genuine follower, transformed sinner who's now following after Jesus. Because you know what the gospel of grace does, should do? Crushes our pride, our sense of entitlement. And we realize that to whom much is given, much is required. That I will never be called upon to give and to demonstrate the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. So why am I whining about this little act of care that God has called upon me to do? It demonstrates whether I'm a genuine follower of Christ. John 13, if you read more towards down, uh, go over to verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This is all in that same sequence and context. And he said, verse 35, look at this, by this, this, what this? Your love for one another. By this, not, yes, we have a doctrinal policy on love. Would you like to read all eight pages of it? No. By this, by the demonstrative love that you have for one another, he says, verse 35, by this, all, all will know that you are my disciples. Not just all fellow believers, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's why it is so tragic that the church has oftentimes such a um, rough testimony, to say it nicely, in our culture and our world, the way that we respond and talk and act towards other believers. You may not disagree with somebody's politics. You may not disagree with somebody's perspective on this, that, and the other. But that's no excuse ever to slander and demean and disrespect another believer. That's one of the tragedies of where our culture is in the last several years. Is the way that we just, I'm not about Christians. The way that we communicate and talk to one another. You do know that we are image bearers of God. That we are, as Christians, we have the uh, blood of Christ that has cleansed us. That we are Jesus people. And yet, what right do we have because of some disagreements and different perspectives and different backgrounds that we would speak to each other and treat each other in such a demeaning way. I think that's shameful. Do you? Okay, one of you do. Okay, good. Seriously. That's why I'm dreading these next few years going through another cycle. Because Christians, Christians, I can't do anything about anybody else, but Christians seem to check out their sense of Christ-likeness. When they get on social media and they start, be careful, be careful of what jazzes you up. You know, there's sometimes, and this is free, you know, there are, there are people in situations that you watch them and you listen to them, guess what? You're more angry and riled up after 30 minutes than you were before. There are some people that specialize in just 
outrageous communication constantly where you are in a constant state of rage and anger. That is not what God's people should be reflecting. Does that mean we ignore the politics? We ignore culture? No, 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 no. But we have a different set of values. We have a different mindset. And I think anything that as Christians, the way that we treat one another is way more important than some of the things that we get excited about. I want you to be excited about loving one another. I want to love the way Jesus loved. Jesus said, buy this, not by the fish sign on your car, not by what radio station you listen to, not by what kind of study Bible you carry, not by what denomination or church. He says, by how you treat and love one another. And remember, he's going to be crucified within 48 hours. And what does he tell them? Love. Love one another. Tao theology, being a servant to one another. You're going to get dirty dealing with messy people. Tao theology, you demonstrate the heart of Jesus and that your life mirrors his life. Well, let me share with you the third observation in verses 11 and 30, is that Tao theology is difficult. Chapter 13, verse 11. In the midst of this, Jesus washing their feet, verse 11 says, For he knew among these twelve, he knew, when he got to that pair of feet, he knew, he knew it before he touched the feet, but he knew who would betray him. Look over to verse 21. And when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. We know that as the apostle John. Verse 24, Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. And leaning, because they reclined, they weren't sitting like Da Vinci's painting where they're all sitting kind of in a long table. They were sitting more in a reclining posture with a table or the food or whatever kind of in the center. They were, it was a much different Eastern setting. And so the verse says, uh, leaning on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? Verse 26, and Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, the Bible says, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, said to Judas, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, ooh, interesting, right? The thief is the treasurer. That some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should go give something to the poor. And having received the piece of bread, Judas then went out immediately and it was night. 
You see, Tao theology is difficult because these messy, dirty people, often that God calls you to serve and love, guess what? Oftentimes, they are undeserving. They have betrayed you. They've sold you out, so to speak. There are people that are difficult, that have made your life difficult. What do you think Jesus thought when he was saying this? And yet, the example there of Judas in the midst of them, and he washed his feet with no indicator we have from Scripture that anybody identified that Judas was the one that was going to betray him. You know, if I'd been washing Judas' feet as I was washing them, I might just take it and just squeeze those feet a little bit. Does that hurt? Does that hurt? You know? (laughs) He didn't do that, did he? He washed those feet. And I don't know about you. This is just a little sanctified imagination. I wonder if he washed those feet extra clean than he did the others. I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me, would you? So how are we to practice Tao theology with difficult people? How are we to exhibit humility, loving, humble servanthood to difficult people? Now, don't raise your hand, but do you have any difficult people in your life? Now, don't say the person next to me. That's not good. But I think we all have them and have them from time to time. And if you're a part of this church, you're going to get a whole bunch of them including me at the top of the list. But let me share with you some very practical, practical things that I believe will be helpful as we implement Tao theology. Number one, what do we do? How do we serve difficult people? Number one, pray for your own heart. Pray for your own heart. The Bible says, don't let any root of bitterness. Pray for your own heart. You realize that whatever you lack, Jesus has in abundance. You say, well, I don't have much love and grace. Guess what? Take out a deposit from the bank of heaven and say, you know, Jesus, I can't, but you can. And Jesus, in me, you you can help me do this. Pray for your own heart. Hebrews 4.16 gives us the path where Hebrews 4.16 tells us, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain, that we may obtain mercy and find what? Grace to help in time of need. Pray for your own heart. Secondly, pray for them. Pray for them. Pray that, that God would be at work in their own hearts. You see, God can do more in a person's life than you can do by nagging them and pressuring them. Have you realized that? You realize that God can change people in ways that you can't even imagine? Look at Colossians 3. We're not going to attach a scripture to all these, but Colossians 3. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on. It's like a coat. Put on. Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, 
long-suffering or patience. Verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Verse 14, but above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Thirdly, move toward them, not away from them. That is, be intentional in seeking them in love, not avoiding. Well, I know so-and-so is going to be there, so I'm not even going to show up. That's not going to help anybody. You come into church like, you know, that may shock you, but even in this church, there's been people who have had issues with somebody, and they would sit on one side, and this other person would sit on the other, and they would make these phony pass each other because we're a small building, and give the phony Christian smile and look at each other when I knew they had issues with each other that were not right, that needed to be taken care of. Don't avoid people. Move toward them, not away from them. What did Jesus do? He moved toward us. He didn't move away from us. He pitched in. Fourthly, find ways to bless them and encourage them. That's easy, right? (laughs) No. Find specific ways. How about just write a note, an email, buy them a gift. You know what that does? That burns some of that pride when you do that. You see, if you are seriously intentional about applying these truths as a Jesus follower, then here's some ways you can do it to kind of put, it, put, it, put a little of your pride on the altar. What do you do on the altar? We got a nice pretty altar or carpet. But back in the old days, it was an altar where things got burned and singed. There's something that when you bless somebody, when you give sacrificially and you bless them, not in a manipulative way. Some people give manipulatively. You ever notice people like that? They give you something and then they're upset because you didn't do X, Y, Z. It's like they're going to put their hook in you and they're going to get you because they gave you something and now you're in their debt and you're like, just wish I could give that thing back. I, I mean, I didn't know it had all... You know about strings attached? It had, it had super glue and strings attached to it. Don't give manipulatively, but give in a way to bless them and encourage them. How about fifth? Give them grace just as God extends grace to you. Do they not deserve grace? Do you deserve grace? No. Does God give you grace? Yes. Colossians 3 in the New Living Translation, verse 13. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Now, I know by just general pastoral observation of life, there's people in here that other people, maybe even in this church, you've been offended by. You've been offended by. And maybe legitimately, maybe just perception. You realize that sometimes we can get a false perception of somebody. We walk by them and they didn't say hi. Well, I just knew that that Lucinda, she thinks she's such a big shot taking care of them dogs. Doesn't have time to care for, she didn't even acknowledge me. 
I'm not going back to that church. I picked on her because she's the least likely to. But you know what? You don't know as you walk past that person what's going on. Listen, I know things about what's going on in people's lives. And most of you do not. You don't know about the test results that they're waiting this week. You don't know the trips to Tampa, Moffat that they're making. You don't know what's going on in their children. You don't know. Don't presume. Be kind. Be gracious. Loving. Forgiving. Think. Here's a principle. Presume the best of somebody. Wouldn't that liberate us? That we just presume the best. And give them grace. Six. Number six. Realize. (laughs) Realize that you too could be the difficult person in someone else's life. I put that in there for me. Right? You might be the EGR in somebody else's life. And you want grace, right? Number seven. I think this is important. Enjoy the good parts of a person while waiting for God to deal with the bad parts. Celebrate the grace that is evident in their life. I mentioned Paul... If you read when he wrote to the church in the first Corinthians, the Corinthian church. I mean, the church at Corinth had a lot of problems. They had rampant sexual immorality. They were charismatics on steroids. They were, you know, they just had a mess. They were doing a lot of wrong stuff. But you know, as you read how Paul opened that letter, he commends the grace where he sees it in their life. Do you do that with other people? You say, well, I, wasn't ra- I was raised in a, with a father and a mother and everything was perfectionist. Guess what? Your natural father doesn't make any difference. You are born again. You are a new creation. You have a heavenly father that deals and works in grace in your life. You have a new set of values in your life. Quit making those excuses. And that's all they are is excuses. Quit demanding more out of people. God taught me that as a parent. Any parents learn some lessons that you made demands on your children and the Lord said, you know what? You, as my child, you don't even do that as me as your parent, heavenly parent. You make demands and expectations that you don't even, that you don't even fulfill. Enjoy the grace of God. Celebrate the grace of God where you see it. Do you hear what I'm saying? Quit demanding perfection. Celebrate and let them know, I see this. It may be small things, but you're celebrating because if you're constantly waiting for the person to reach perfection, listen, the resurrection is a long ways away for some of us. And if you're, that's when we get perfect bodies and everything, right? And if you're waiting to be gracious and kind... Well, good luck. And number eight, while you're waiting for that, while you're waiting for that breakthrough, whatever you want to call it, make good choices by treating people the way you want to be treated. That's a fundamental Bible verse, isn't it? From Luke 6.31. 
do to others as you would like them to do to you. How do you treat people? How do you respond to people? People are messy. People are dirty. They're, not, they're going to disappoint you. They're going to let you down. Jesus knew all of that. But he chose to come into our life. And your handout at the bottom there, let me give you these final thoughts. Why, why we ought to wash dirty, messy feet Why? Number one, Jesus did it. That's a good enough reason. We can just stop right there, right? Jesus did it. Because dirty feet need washing. Jesus said, I've not come as a doctor to minister to the well or the healthy, but Jesus says, I've come as the physician to do what? To serve the sick, the ones that have need. People need their feet. I'm using feet as a metaphor. They need... The grace, they need the washing, they need the serving, they need the humility. Why? Because that's the way we all are and will be. And last is because we're blessed when we do it. In that paragraph, let me conclude with this statement here to summarize. Is that followers of Jesus distinguish themselves through humble acts of service to those who don't expect it or deserve it and are unable to repay it. You know the Greek, there's several words for love. Eros is more the erotic, sexual, sensual sensual type of love. Philos, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, that's a friendly, uh, affectionate love we have just... For one another, but then there's the word agape. You think agape? I thought that was the name of a bakery. No, agape. There was some Christian that named it. You know, I mean, everybody likes to take these. Agape means in the Greek, it's one of the words for love, and that is a self-giving, sacrificial love. That in essence is that my giving expects nothing in return, and that's the love that Jesus gave us. Now, this morning I've got a prop. I don't usually use props, but I have a prop. And in my little bag here, I have the towel that we're given, so to speak, that when we come to faith in Christ, that we're given, if we're Jesus' followers and we're serious, we have a nice, clean towel, right? I know it's clean because my wife washed it yesterday. But after a while, if we're faithful, at the end of our day and at the end of our life, our towel should look a little torn, a little ragged. That's probably only after a few years. Because if you finish your journey, this towel's going to have holes and it's going it's to be a little more messy than it is. But this is the towel. This is the towel of a Jesus follower. You hear what I'm saying? It's dirty. Demonstrates your take Jesus seriously. And don't kid yourself. It's difficult. There are people that are difficult. 
But Jesus, Jesus did it. And we want to be like Jesus, right? Let's pray.